Hello and welcome to Dealcast, the weekly M&A podcast presented to you by Merger Market and SS&C Intralinks. I'm Juliana Needham. I'm a business journalist and I've been covering M&A for a decade. This week, we're heading to China and Hong Kong to review M&A trends in the Asia-Pacific region during 2023. And we'll also be finding out what's expected to happen during the rest of 2024. I'm joined by Leisha Zhu, who is the China Managing Editor, and Ed Vinales, who is the Public Markets Editor for Asia. Hi, Ed. Hi, Leisha. Thanks very much for joining me today. Hi, Juliana. Thanks for inviting me. So, Leisha, let's start off with you and one of the big factors impacting M&A globally. That's the Chinese regulatory reviews of global deals, particularly US deals, and those that are geopolitically sensitive, such as in semiconductors or other high-tech sectors. Can you explain how the Chinese regulatory review process has evolved in the past year, please? Yes, um, China's major review regulator, SAMR, admitted uh, last year in a conference that the global trade restrictive policies have influenced its major review of uh, complex deals, especially in the semiconductor area. Um, the reflect uh, the influence reflected in several aspects. The first is uh, uh, the impact will influence SAMR's competition analysis uh, of the review. Uh, because uh, there are a lot of Chinese third parties um, lodging complaints and uh, uh, SAMR thinks the restrictive policies has uh, enabled Chinese customers, uh, uh, downstream customers access uh, some certain products and that will change the competition uh, landscape of some market. So uh, SAMR thinks uh, um, this has influenced its competition analysis and uh, in in the review some deals even if there's no serious competition concerns uh, some will still consider uh, imposing remedies on the other hand summer's review timeline will be influenced by the geopolitical impacts because a lot of third parties lodge complaints and summer needs to uh, take time talking to them uh, negotiating with them, got their understanding and comments, and then you know got their agreements on the remedies. Uh, and this reflected uh, summer has took longer than average of uh, uh, the durations in accepting filings um, for review, and also taking long time in remedy talks to uh, handle uh, some complex deals in this area. Um, on the other hand, um, this will also influence summer's approval timing of some complex deals. For example, the political time, the approval of VMware Broadcom deal uh, demonstrated some high profile uh, political events such as the APEC summit will also influence some complex deals approving time. Uh, summer also thinks that the um, the global restrictive policies has also influenced the deal parties' ability in carrying out the commitments to Chinese merger review regulators. And this also influenced SEMR when it considering accepting a kind of remedies. So 
summer, you know, uh, when summer reviewing the uh, in, Intel's proposed acquisition of Tower Semi, uh, it, it found it's difficult to find the satisfied remedies, and then uh, resulted in that summer unable to give the approval of the deal in time. So. Um, Samer said it will address these kind of political impacts in the upcoming guidelines on horizontal merger, uh, which uh, is now in legislative process and is expected to come out this year. And Lisha, can you give a few brief examples of deals that you've been following that have been notable in relation to the, the approval process in China? Yeah, in the past uh, in the past year, we have followed uh, Intel's proposed acquisition of uh, uh, Tower Semi, which uh, uh, the deal party is unable to complete the deal because uh, it couldn't get approval in time uh, from Semer. Um, this is because uh, Semer cannot find satisfied remedies due to the uh, UX export control on chips. Um, on the other hand, the summer reviews uh, gives approval to the um, Maxilinia's proposed acquisition of uh, Silicon Motion and also Broadcom's uh, um, acquisition of uh, VMware. But the summer took longer, a uh, long time to review it. It took uh, 7.5 uh, months to accept uh, Broadcom's filing. Uh, for review, uh, which is uh, quite longer. Normally, SEMER only takes uh, like three to four months to accept a normal filing for review. Um, and it uh, took six months uh, of uh, the clock suspension for remedy talks. This is uh, extremely long. So we can see uh, SEMER's review is impacted by the uh, export control policies, but uh, uh, the policy will uh, normally, you know, only influence the timeline and, uh, uh, you know, in most cases, SEMA will give approval. The outcome will not be uh, influenced. Thanks, Leisha. Now, coming to you, Ed, can we look at Chinese companies delisting from US exchanges? On a recent episode of the podcast, we heard from Troy Hooper, who spoke about some of the challenges for Chinese companies looking to list in the US, most notably the fast fashion group Shein. But there's also this continuing trend of Chinese companies delisting. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So, I mean, just extending from what Leisha was saying um, about the regulatory impact, I mean, that is what we're seeing affecting deals you know, from all different aspects and countries, inbound and outbound, is regulatory regulatory hurdles and regulatory delays. And of course, in this kind of market environment where, uh, you know, interest rates are up uh, and it's a very volatile environment, uh, any delay to, to some of these big deals c- can cause the bidder to want to get out. Um, you know, you just talked about the Shein, um, you know, listing they're trying to list in the US, they've got to go through a whole bunch of outbound regulatory approvals just to be able to go through the US regulatory approvals for a listing. Um, on the on the delisting side of things, um, you know, we've had a there was a lot, there's been lots of that over the years, but that has tailed down um, come you know, the frequency of of, U, of of US listed Chinese companies delisting has has reduced quite a bit over the years. However, we've we've recently had two pretty sizable deals that that are that are in, that are interesting. Um, 
One was Chin Data, a data center company that was largely controlled, in fact, by by Bain Capital. Um, and another ongoing deal, which is involving Holosys, Chinese automation control systems for for business for trains, essentially. Um, uh, the Chin Data deal was interesting because Bain Capital basically forced through uh, a lowball bid. Um, many of these companies, most of these companies are incorporated in Cayman and that regime, that regime facilitates, um, uh, uh, bidders that own, uh, that have large voting rights in companies to sort of push through the deal at whatever price it likes. Um, that definitely happened with the Chin Data deal. We expect it will be dissented, which is something I think we've talked about on this podcast before, um, post deal sort of appraisal by shareholders seeking fair value for their shares um that will definitely happen in in chin data i i i'm i'm sure um and that will become clear in in the coming weeks um holosys is a really interesting one because it had multiple bids uh, over the years but the management pushed back pushed back Shareholders, number of hedge fund shareholders uh, galvanized and and called for an EGM to try and push the management into sort of doing the right thing, inverted commas, um, which is, you know, entertaining these bids. Um, it did. A bid came in uh, pretty low ball. I think most would agree. Uh, they've got a rival bid out there, indicative of uh, they're not really entertaining it. So we're not going to see an auction in the Holocaust situation. And if this was taking place in America or in Europe or, or certainly, um, certainly in America, um, you know, that, that would be an auction situation, a competitive bid situation, but it, it's not going to be. So that's kind of a bit of an, uh, sort of insight in what's going on there with the delisting. And Ed, staying with you, let's talk about Japan. It was the only country globally to see a significant climb in M&A last year, 2023. I understand there's a big rise in shareholder activism there, plus some changes to corporate governance. Could you tell me more about that, please? Yeah, so Japan, um, you know, I think partly because of the the US-China tensions, um, a lot of money has been flooding towards Japan, towards India, towards anywhere other than China, essentially. Um, so Japan's benefited from that. Um, it's got some of its own sort of secular, uh, themes, uh, that are, that are driving activity there, low interest rates, um, perhaps being one of the most notable. And so there's a lot of Japan's obviously attracting a lot of interest. The corporate governance reforms are, are facilitating activism and th- those reforms, which we've been talking about for a decade have really accelerated in the last year. Um, Dalton Investments, which I think is a, is a multi-billion dollar AUM fund. Um, one of the co-founders of that recently said, look, the number one activist in Japan, the number one shareholder activist in Japan is the Tokyo Stock Exchange. Right? The government there is really trying to facilitate M&A um, uh, to stimulate the economy and to get and to get certain things done that they, that they, they want done. Uh, the Stock Exchange has said, uh, last year said that any company trading at, at below one um, one times price to book needs to really think about what it's doing and needs to start thinking about allocating cash more effectively, whether that's uh, returning it to shareholders, going back, getting it back into the economy. So things are being really shook up there. And that's why Japan is 
number two most activist market in the world um, and has been for some time. And there's just huge amounts of opportunities. There's still a lot of reluctance amongst some founders to do deals. Um, you know, there's still a bit of a clubby atmosphere around that. But, um, you know, another factor there is the fact that a number of these founders are getting older and passing over to their you know, uh, sons and daughters um, who who might be more open to activities. So there's a lot of interesting themes going on, and that's kind of Japan. Yeah. Following on with the theme of shareholder activism, another country that's seen a big rise in shareholder activism in the region is South Korea. Can you explain how the market there is evolving and whether it's following a similar path to Japan, please? Uh, yeah, I get very excited about South Korea, but I don't think anybody else does. Uh, anywhere near as much. Um, M&A activity has sunk there like everywhere else. But on the public market side, we are seeing some corporate governance reforms. We are seeing more activism uh, facilitated by certain reforms. Um, and maybe it's three, four, five, seven years behind where Japan is, but it's tracking a broadly similar pace. South Korea has got but number three, I think, most active, active shareholder activist market in the world. So it's an interesting one to look at, um, but not quite as exciting as Japan, I would say. Great. Thank you. And finally, let's have a quick look at Australia. There was a big deal that fell through there in December, the takeover of Australia's biggest energy company, Origin Energy, which was rejected by its own shareholders. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and whether it's reflective of a more challenging M&A environment in the country? Australia is just the deathbed of. Um, listed M&A, really. Uh, you think something's going to happen, it doesn't. There's lots of reasons for that. Um, companies there get overpriced and get underpriced. You know, there's a good piece of news, they get overpriced. They, bad piece of news, the stock tanks too far. It's very difficult valuations. The Origin Energy deal was basically uh, Brookfield, the, the Canadian alternative asset manager, was trying to acquire Australia's second largest power generator. And it was a very ESG-themed deal. They managed to get around antitrust hurdles, convince uh, the regulator, ACCC, that this was a good deal for the country because there was some competition concerns. They managed to do that. And then they came up against Australian Super, the superannuation fund, which is which acted very activisty. Um, um, and they said, no, we don't want to we don't want to sell to you. We don't think the value is right. And uh, they managed to build a position in the stock and block the deal. Um and that you know it was it annoyed quite a few quite a few ESG social sort of activists social activists in the country who thought this was a good deal for the country, but no, it didn't happen. And um, that's kind of Australia for you. Great, Ed and Leisha. Good to talk to you. Thanks very much. That was Ed Vanales, and earlier you heard from Leisha Zoo. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Dealcast from Merger Market and SS&C Intralinks. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please follow it. And if you're listening through Apple, please rate and review the show. And if you want to find out more about what we've been discussing, have a look at our show notes. Join us again next week. 